0: Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we continue our conversation about aspirations. In the last episode, episode 17, we discussed how aspirations can motivate positive action and help reduce poverty. At the same time, our guests, Katrina Kosek and Cecilia Mo also warned against a narrow focus on aspirations as the answer to improving lives and highlighted the need to also address systematic barriers to poverty reduction. Now, we continue the conversation with Thomas Rocco. He is postgraduate researcher at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Thomas is doing research on young people's lived experiences of welfare in the UK and he uses data collected through the Welfare Conditionality Research Project to try and understand how young people navigate the welfare system in the UK and how they are affected by its rules and regulations. In our conversation, we pick up on aspirations held by young adults and how these are shaped by the context they find themselves in, including the messaging that's pushed by the welfare system. Thomas finds that a lack of opportunities and the harsh policy environment limits young people's aspirations. It also prevents them from achieving the goals they do have in life. To kick things off, Thomas starts by explaining the situation that many young people in the UK find themselves in these days and the challenges they face.
1: So it's important for us to isolate and magnify youth-specific interpretations of struggles in the labour market. Evidence indicates that young people are disproportionately affected by economic recessions, uh, the restructuring of the labor market in terms of growing casualization and insecurity of entry level jobs. They are far more likely to be on zero hour contracts, for example, um, as well as obviously unaffordable housing and the phenomenon of generation rent. And this may seem to some as kind of inevitable. So people may think, well, obviously young people earn less at the beginning, but those that work hard will go on to realize a more secure future. Again, the evidence suggests that millennials are the first generation since the war to be projected to be relatively worse off than their parents uh, across a number of metrics. It's also been well documented that intergenerational inequalities are widening. Um, This is not to say that young people from a particular generation, such as millennials, are equally disadvantaged. But it's to say that, on on average, the opportunities to maintain secure employment and get on the property ladder are significantly reduced for the young people in this study, compared with their parents' generation, who would have been transitioning to adulthood during the kind of 1980s and 90s.
0: Clearly, this generation faces challenges unlike generations before them. Thomas made reference to the phenomenon of generation rent which refers to the fact that most young people are unable to buy a house of their own and rent well into their late 30s or early 40s, that is if they are able to get on the property market at all. As we have heard in previous episodes, such as episode 8 on food banks, changes in the UK welfare system in recent years have had many negative effects. Again, young people seem to be especially affected.
1: The recent period of welfare reform in the UK under the coalition government Uh, from 2010-15, to is characterised by intensified conditionality attached to claiming social security, and sanction rates were historically high during this period. Um, Young people bore the brunt of this new kind of punitive design, as their access to support was restricted, The, um, the universal credit payment remains lower for those under 25s, and for those seeking housing support, All single people under 35 are only entitled to the shared accommodation rate, which significantly reduces their housing entitlement and availability of housing when compared with older claimants. Young people also experience much higher rates of sanctions. For instance, from November 2012 to December 2016, white males aged 18 to 24 were 98% more likely to be sanctioned than white males aged 25 to 49. This would suggest that young people are, are, are particularly at risk of facing long periods without any financial support, incurring rent arrears and being exposed to a range of adverse physical and mental well-being impacts associated with the experience of welfare sanctions.
0: This is where I asked Thomas to take a step back and to explain to us what he means talking about welfare conditionality and what the various sanctions that he spoke about entail.
1: So there's certain kind of hoops that they have to jump through and these are becoming increasingly demanding. So there'll be, this was the kind of early stages of very intense uh, welfare conditionality, such as 30 hour a week job search, um, kind of mandatory work schemes, um, which kind of on the surface seem like a good idea, but it's it's this concept of transferring being out of work as a job so you're kind of this workfare mentality where like okay you're out of work but you need to do everything you can to get yourself back into work as fast as possible and these are the these are the set guidelines that we've set for you if you if you don't abide by these by these rules we can take your basic support away and sometimes this is not even for just a few weeks this can be for months at a time for these young people who really don't have very much informal support networks so it kind of leaves them destitute at times.
0: So the system asks people to abide by a lot of rules just to maintain their benefits. These rules apply to all people of all ages but the numbers that Thomas mentioned in terms of how many young people are sanctioned and lose their benefits are simply staggering. Thomas explains some of the reason why young people are so badly affected
1: there's there's some people that feel like potentially it's because they are less kind of in tune with the benefit system itself they are new to it they don't know how to kind of interact or kind of say the right things do the right things because they're obviously young they're inexperienced in the world of uh, social security as well as everything else but just having a think about it myself it could be a kind of rebellious thing because there's some examples in the data set that there was a kind of deep resentment almost for going into the job center for the work coaches and the young people were sometimes trying to almost get one up on the uh, on their work coach or the support staff so they would be saying things like I'm not going to go in because like I can't stand it there and they see themselves rejecting support as a kind of empowering measure it's like they are they're in control and they're not going to kind of bow to the to the demands that are being being asked of them
0: now back to the topic of aspirations i asked thomas about what he found in the data regarding young people's aspirations especially having heard about their insecure employment housing and welfare situation to clarify thomas makes reference to various waves in his study wave a wave b and wave c this refers to different time points in the welfare conditionality study with one year in between each wave?
1: Yeah, so there there was a range, but I think as the vast majority of the cohort were out of work, the main goal tended for the coming year tended to be to secure full-time employment. Many of the young people were were not selective about which kind of employment or career. They were typically looking for just a job, any job really. For example, Jamie, a 21-year-old job seeker from London, he was asked, as were most of the young people towards the end of each interview. What are the main things you hope for yourself to achieve over the next year? Jamie says, the only thing I'm hoping to achieve is to have a job. It's the only thing I'm working towards. So it was quite common from those from the study to have had a number of different jobs before and throughout the time frame of the study. Often a year on when when the study catches up with an individual such as Jamie here, there had been work experiences and spells of temporary employment, but at the time of wave B or wave C interview, the young person remained out of work. The sample as a whole realized relatively immobile employment transitions. So of the 38 who were out of work at wave A, only 10 would be in some form of employment when they left the study. To give a sense of the kind of pervasiveness of the employment and security experienced by this cohort, Maria, a 25 year old universal credit claimant from Bath is asked the same question. In a year's time, what would you hope to achieve um, or have in your life? She responds, Well, I'd like to be working somewhere that is maybe not necessarily enjoyable, but like just nice, nothing bad happening, nothing like overly stressful. So just have a stable place to work and stable accommodation. Because this is obviously just temporary and just more direction of what I'm going to do with my life, I guess. So here Maria epitomizes the struggle of moving to and from temporary work and housing, referred to as yo-yo transitions in the literature. The once relatively kind of linear and structured youth transitions have been somewhat eroded and contemporary youth transitions are more individualized, uh, less secure, And some are caught in a perpetual cycle of precarity, living month to month, and any rationale or ability to long term plan is significantly stifled.
0: As I was speaking to Thomas, it struck me how young people are motivated by finding a safe job, a secure job that provides more permanent rather than short term employment. There was no talk about what kind of work they would actually be doing, what they would get excited about. And Thomas also spoke about housing aspirations and how also these aspirations focused on finding something that's secure and stable.
1: Many of the participants, particularly those with children, were more focused on housing aspirations than employment aspirations. Goals for the coming year again, were focused on kind of security, um, this time related to housing. The majority of the cohort were living in social rented accommodation, typically provided by a housing association. However, many of these tenancies were contingent upon tenant behavior and conduct. For example, there was a group uh, from Edinburgh who were involved in a a training flat scheme whereby homeless individuals were housed in self-contained units and support staff would be on hand to help and monitor how the young people were getting on. While under the training period, young people would have to demonstrate their readiness and worthiness to be granted a more secure tenancy. The main conditions for progressing were paying rent and bills on time, keeping the flat clean and having a few having few complaints from neighbours. In some cases more intrusive measures were in place whereby tenants were expected to attend workshops um, and live healthily in order to maintain their tenancy. So basically These young people are under constant watch, and any wrong move could hinder their chances of secure housing. Often homemaking, in terms of personalising one's living space, was prohibited for the training period, and even when it was allowed, tenants often didn't have enough money to curate their own home. Katrina, a 17-year-old job seeker from Edinburgh, who was recruited through this training flat scheme, she says... Oh, I just want to have my permanent flat and have it all nice and decorated. She's then asked, what do you think are the things that will make it most likely for you to be able to achieve your goals? Katrina replies, just keep my head down, study hard. And when I get to college, keep on saving up money to get my furniture. Mm -hmm. And so here's the first indication of the pervasive Conceptualization of future success in the eyes of these young people as something which they alone can achieve if they adopt the attitudes and behaviours associated with the post-Fordist work ethic.
0: Thomas went on to explain that many young people in the study were unable to meet their goals or to achieve their aspirations. They either fell back into unemployment or had other setbacks when it came to housing, for example. I asked Thomas about the main barriers that these young people experienced in achieving their aspirations, and particularly about the sense that young people felt that success was down to their own individual attitudes and behaviours.
1: Yeah, so uh, internalised individualism is the term I've used to describe uh, this phenomenon of young people kind of embodying the mantra that individual traits which they believe can be both learned and adopted are kind of the main driver of labor market security and quality of life the notion that those who can work but are out of work can become employed by merely working hard or by doing and saying the right things i wouldn't even say this is controversial but it kind of struck me that most of the young people um believe that the unemployment is primarily the fault of the individual and therefore themselves. And it's something that they themselves have to fix on the, kind of on their own. There are so many quotes from the transcripts that indicate um, this internalized individualism. Molly, a 23-year-old job seeker from Inverness, was one who kind of adopted this view most passionately. When Molly was discussing her employment aspirations at Wave A, she was asked, do you think you'll be able to achieve that? To which she replies, yes. Then the interviewer asks, what could help this more likely? Um, Molly then states, being prepared, doing everything that I can in order to prepare from having a decent meal to enough sleep, hydrated, paperwork and all the rest of it. Well, preparation for myself with college, I mean, and being dedicated as well as to stay on the path of hard work and keep on going. Even when you feel down and low and that, you've got to keep on going. Sometimes it's better when you're feeling low to just take a wee bit of a time to recover in that. So you can do a good job, an even better job. And that's what I find sometimes in life. So this kind of this quote from Molly indicates an adoption of the the self-help and kind of behaviorist approach to future success. She has internalized the notion that embodying the responsible, healthy organized and positive self will enable her to realize her employment aspirations. Um, from Molly's perspective, her future is in her hands and if she remains motivated, her goals will materialize. Molly remained on universal credit throughout the duration of the study, including spells of employment and training.
0: Molly wasn't the only respondent who referred to the importance of motivation. Personal attitudes were frequently mentioned as potential barriers or opportunities much in line with what we heard in the previous episode about aspirations and the crucial role of having a positive outlook in life.
1: So the question's like, do you have any barriers in your way of getting your aspirations and your dreams? Is there anything holding you back? Andy, a 19-year-old job seeker from Peterborough, says, yes, I would say I'm sort of a negative thinker. I used to think I can't do this, I can't achieve this, I can't make it. So implying that kind of if he remains um, positive and and optimistic that he could achieve those things. And that was the thing that was holding him back. Another one here. So what would make it more likely or less likely that you get this hairdressing job? Well, I don't know. It's down to my motivation. There's nothing really going to stop me at all. That was Mia, um, a 19 year old job seeker from Edinburgh. We have one more here. So how optimistic or pessimistic are you that you'll be able to achieve this? And Emma, a 24 year old lone parent from London, says, well, if you put your mind to it, you can do it. So, yes, I know I'm going to do it because I want it. So these understandings were quite alarming to me, having engaged with the extensive literature base on the kind of augmented challenges faced by this generation of young people.
0: Thomas goes on to explain how he looked into literature by Barbara Einrich and others about the attraction of the self-help narrative and the idea that if you work on yourself and fix yourself, you can fix your life. He talks about how this is a false promise and how young people have bought into this. He also explores the topic of social mobility, its promise as well as its challenges.
1: So on the surface, this appears to be a kind of positive step for those who who care about reducing social inequalities, to try and lift as many young people uh, as possible from the lower end of the socioeconomic scale toward the middle and upper end. This seems like worthy policy in, on the face of it, and would maybe address the, the entrenched cycle of poverty. However, there are many critiques and debunks of this political obsession with uh, social mobility, The ability to be upward socially mobile has reduced considerably for recent generations of young people. Moreover, basing an intervention on the goal that everyone can and and should move up and out um, of their social class is disingenuous and potentially harmful to the young people who engage with with such interventions. Only a handful of people can realise long-range social mobility And these strategies serve as a kind of talent competition for those from deprived backgrounds, where the rare success stories of those who overcame the odds and realized a middle class lifestyle are kind of pinned up um, as aspirational targets for all those with reduced employment opportunities and help to reinforce the idea that anyone can succeed if you put your mind to it. There's an assumption also within this kind of social mobility discourse that it's something which can arise from a particularly aspirational and ardent lower classes. So here a firm belief in meritocracy is used to justify the vastly unequal outcomes in our society, whereby those at the top recount their personal struggles, um, perseverance and character, which enabled their success whereas those at the bottom are also deserving of their failures because they do not possess the right attitudes and attributes to warrant access to a higher social status. So stemming from this is the simplistic idea that if only those who have failed in this open competitive playing field could garner some of the same characteristics, strive for high educational attainment, and be ambitious like the winners in society, more people could achieve upward social mobility and therefore a better quality of life.
0: Thomas' analysis touches on the twofold nature of aspirations and the role of personal attitudes in life. While they give hope that anything is possible and also underpin major success stories, equally they feed into the false suggestion that everyone can rise up. And most worryingly, they suggest that failure is down to personal fault. We close this conversation by discussing where this leaves us. What's next? Crucially, what should policy do?
1: So, yeah, I think, it's, I think the implications uh, of these findings are, are far-reaching. It may indicate potentially a success of successive governments policy approach in the sense that for years the UK has been trying to regulate the behaviour of those who claim state support and encourage uh, self-responsibility. And that is a success in the sense that for neoliberal systems to function effectively, populations um, are conditioned to accept this individualized conceptualization of social problems, such as employment and underemployment. However, I do feel that we, do. we need to change uh, the strategy, beginning with the policy aims. We need to focus more on what Chapman describes as worthy but dull um, outcomes, such as supporting young people to take more control over their lives, to provide them with a certain level of security and economic dependence for all young people, rather than expect those from marginalized backgrounds to kind of magically realize it themselves we need to move away from our obsession with social mobility. This is not to say that social mobility is a myth. However, instead of holding up rare kind of individual, individual cases of those who overcame the odds and these rags to riches stories, which are so pertinent in contemporary culture, we should look to develop realistic goals and practical strategies for success uh, in collaboration with young people, rather than emphasizing the hollow motivational discourse Uh, something like a brighter future is waiting for you. You just have to go out there and take it. Overall though, the real issues lie in the the structural barriers. Um, We need to provide more opportunities for young people to and protect them better from unemployment and underemployment. In this current time, we are relying on the instilled um, entrepreneurial spirit and uh, punitive welfare designs to push young people back into precarious jobs and encourage a belief that labour market struggles represent a fault within the individual.
0: Thank you for listening. If you're interested in a topic of aspirations, please make sure to listen to our other episode about this topic and to read our blog post. Together they offer a nuanced perspective of the role of aspirations in people's lives, both positive and possibly more negative. Thank you for joining us. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram or wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us again next time.